0: hey guys hope everyone is well everyone can hear me i just had an hour to blow before a friday night dinner date and i just saw a tweet from david it's a very good question regarding the mechanics of the treasury issuing bonds and how that works with the tga and then with the tga spending that money back into the real economy and how does that work with bank reserves if they're not really dollars but they're more just interbank tokens and just a lot of the plumbing stuff and i know this really really gets into the weeds but the more i learned about this the more i realized that the devil is in the details and if you really want to have an educated view of what may come down the road as far as inflation or any of these things that will affect your portfolio i think it's very important if not mandatory that you understand how this type of plumbing works So that oh we'll just go ahead and set up a quick spaces because i think the one we had the other night was really productive and uh see if we can go through some of these good awesome questions and hopefully i can give you guys some answers and get some dialogue going it'll be productive so David, I just sent you a speaker deal. You want to go ahead and, if you can accept that, and then you can start off with that question that you had that you tweeted a while back. Can you invite to speak? There it is. You got it, buddy. Yeah. Hey, thanks doing for doing this time time. on
1: such short notice. Um. So on the podcast yeah. with uh free love, you described a scenario where where there's kind of this like debt monetization going on where the fiscal authority issues debt the primary dealers or the banks yep. will essentially buy those in order to fund the government send out stimulus checks Well, where i was confused yep. is, is what would be the i guess unit uh, or the currency or the money that they're using to buy that debt because if they're using bank reserves you know you can always say hey those are not spendable in the economy whatsoever yet at the same time the treasury can now use those to spend in the economy by sending out stimulus so I think that was the disconnect for me is reserves versus spendable money in the economy.
0: Yeah, this is a great question. How can I explain this? I think it's easiest to explain if you separate or compartmentalize the balance sheet of the Fed and the liabilities of the Fed and the balance sheet of the commercial banking system. And in order to buy a burger or a car, pay your rent, that transaction between you and the seller occurs on the balance sheets of the commercial banking system. And it's, of course, denominated in dollars. But there are other transactions that are interbank that happen exclusively on the Fed's balance sheets. And that would be with the bank's reserves. That are also denominated in dollars. So, when, and it gets confusing, and maybe I'm not describing it properly, but when I say that you can't spend the bank reserves into the real economy, what I'm really talking about is economic transactions, financial transactions, or any transactions in the real economy don't involve the Fed's balance sheet, they only involve the commercial bank's balance sheet. So let's walk through this process, and then I think you can kind of figure out how, how how you would describe it in your own words. So Janet Yellen issues treasuries at auction. And let's just say, to keep it easy, these treasuries are purchased by J.P. Morgan. So mo- most likely, J.P. Morgan is going to use bank reserves to buy these treasuries from Janet Yellen because Janet Yellen's account is with the Fed and so is the bank. So they can settle that transaction or they can uh, settle that transaction without having to use the balance sheet, the asset side, or the, excuse me, the liability side of the commercial bank's balance sheet. So JP Morgan just basically says, okay, we'll take a billion dollars with the treasuries. Janet Yellen says, great, you win the, the auction. And then... JP Morgan sends a message to the Fed saying, hey, if you could do me a favor and just take a billion dollars of bank reserves out of my account and then shoot it down into the TGA for payment to Janet Yellen. And just like you would if you're sending a thousand bucks to someone at Wells Fargo and you bank with B of A. So then what happens is the Treasury or excuse me, the bank reserves go from JP Morgan's account down to Janet Yellen's account, the TGA. And then, so nothing has happened as far as M2 money supply. Nothing. So far, nothing. And said a different way, nothing has happened on the liability side of the commercial bank's balance sheets. The only thing that has happened is on the Fed's liability or the Fed's balance sheet on the liability side. And it hasn't changed in size. We've just moved a billion dollars or billion dollars of the bank reserves from one account into the other account. And then Janet Yellen says, okay, we're going to go ahead and spend this billion dollars in, in the form of stimmy checks. Okay. So she sends out all of those physical checks and they go to the recipients and the recipients, one by one, take those checks and deposit them at their local bank. So let's say the average Joe as a stimmy check for $1,000. He deposits that check in the bank. The bank credits his deposit account, which is a liability of the commercial banking system, therefore M2 Money Supply. They deposit that into his account, so his account increases by $1,000. Well, that increases their liabilities by $1,000. So to have an asset to match up with that liability the tga says hey fed we just sent a check to the average joe and he deposited it for a thousand bucks and he deposited it at wells fargo or whatever his bank was so we need you to take a thousand dollars worth of bank reserves out of the tga and send them to wells fargo to offset that liability that we just sent them so now all of a sudden, you have taken the, the auction, got the treasuries, we had a transaction on the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet, and then you have a transaction that impacts the liability side of the commercial bank's balance sheet, and then to settle everything up, you've got to have one more transaction on the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet, where those reserves, that offset the new liabilities, you know, the assets that offset the new liabilities, go from the TJ into the account of, let's say, Wells Fargo. So on net balance, what has happened to M2 money supply? It has increased. It has increased. Why? Because And the, the simplest way to think about this or remember it is whenever a bank buys an asset, it's going to unless it's assuming that they're buying directly from the Treasury or they're buying from a non-bank entity, it's going to impact M2. In fact, whenever a bank buys or sells, it's going to impact M2 and with a non-bank entity as the counterparty. And that includes the Fed. The Fed's a bank. So if the Fed does a transaction with a non-bank entity, if they're buying it's going to increase M2, and if they're selling, it's going to decrease M2. But if they're doing it just interbank to where they're settling with those exclusively, with those interbank tokens, then it's not going to impact M2 unless it's bank to treasury, in which case the treasury would spend that, impacting M2 from the standpoint of it increasing the commercial bank's liabilities. So, I'm going to stop right there because I know without a whiteboard that gets really confusing. And then David, I'll I'll pass it back to you. And do you have any comments on that? Do you have any further questions? And maybe you could take that and describe it in a, you know, describe those bank reserves or how those interplay with M2 in a way that's a lot better than I can.
1: No, I mean I think you did a great job and, and I think it's it's reminiscent I I think some of your prior whiteboards that you've done are going mean, be back to if I if I recite it to you, essentially the banks have what we we'll call the funny money, the words that are not spendable in the economy. And when they buy the treasuries, those bank reserves go into the GA account. And I think this is the part where I was confused. I was saying, hold on, these reserves are not actually spendable in the economy. But what you're saying is that then the treasury, because they make the law, they can go out and tell all these banks and citizens around the world, they say, hey, we're giving you all whatever a thousand dollars but in order to offset that from an accounting perspective all the banks of all those citizens are saying hey we just received these thousand dollars times you know millions of of people in the u.s what is the offsetting accounting entry for these thousand dollar entries and you're saying that's where the reserves from the tga essentially get allocated to all of the bank and everything reconciles from an accounting perspective so so it's not necessarily the reserves that become spendable as much as they just become the backing for the new or the, the offsetting entries for the new
0: liabilities that have made Well said. And I think that that's another way to look at it that might help some people that have more of an accounting background uh, for sure. Now, where things get a little confusing is, let's say the banks buy the treasuries, then the bank reserves go down into the TGA. But let's assume for a moment that Janet Yellen, instead of spending the billion dollars on treasuries, let's say that she just takes the billion dollars and gives it to the Fed because they have treasuries that are maturing that they don't want to roll over. So then what happens, right? Then the billion dollars goes into the TGA, and then to pay the Fed, the Fed just reduces the TGA down to, or reduces the TJ by a billion, therefore reducing their liabilities. And that's how the treasury pays the Federal Reserve. And so that is happening, all of those transactions. And then that money, you know, those bank reserves go to bank reserve heaven. They're done, they're gone. And, and that happens exclusively on the Fed's balance sheet without impacting M2 money supply at all. Mm,
1: okay. And so, really, all this comes down to: to the banks probably did not need any of the reserves from the TGA um, because they're already flush with reserves. But they cannot essentially create the multiplier effect on those reserves, right? Because they don't see any kind of good risk opportunities out So They're not lending in general. So, so really, it's the Treasury's ability to almost guarantee them and, and say, "Look, you can." expand the deposits the m2 almost risk-free that, that that's really what's kind of enabling all of this right it's it's the, the the fiscal side that that i think is allowing the money expansion as opposed to the banks in the, in this portion are you talking about 2020 specifically yeah uh yeah why well, i guess you, you know because it's like like um what i'm trying to get at is is everybody says you know is QE, uh, you know, money printing or is it not? And I think it, it comes down to, it depends, right? And that's why I'm looking for confirmation. That's
0: right. It it depends on like a thousand different factors as far, if your, if your definition of money printing is an increase in broad money or M2 money supply. And and that I think is the way most people use the term quote unquote money printing.
1: Got it. Okay. Okay. All right. So I think that makes sense. I I have another, just kind of more broad-reaching question um, about the Fed. So on the Fed's question, I I guess I could look at the balance sheet myself. Do do they really only have like like um, you know reserves, and then they can buy Treasuries and they can buy mortgage-backed securities, or do they also have this kind of uh, this broad money on their balance sheet as well? And so can they um, like have any impact directly on the yeah do they essentially have deposits on their balance sheet where they could say, hey, we're just going to you know, dole out money or can they only just kind of um, affect things kind of through these hidden forces of manipulating the the, the the collateral and the reserve markets or do they themselves actually have some broad money?
0: No, no, they don't really have any direct impact, any technical broad money. Again, if, if they're buying doing QE and the sellers are non-bank, then that's going to impact M2. That's going to impact broad money. But they don't have... I guess the way you're asking the question, the way I should answer it, is they don't have... There is no broad money that is a liability on their balance sheets. The only quote-unquote money that is a liability on their balance sheet would be base money. And therefore, the only way that you can change the amount of base money is through QE or QT. I see,
1: I see. Okay, that, that helps me. It's like, literally, they can't print broad money, which is the type of money that, that you know, we're concerned about in, in the inflationary aspect. They can only just do these, these kind of, uh, yeah, behind-the-scenes movements with, with, with reserves. Sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but to dovetail on that question, if we go to a central bank digital currency, then it's a game-changer then it's a game changer. Then they will be able to print broad money directly, literally, uh, because you or whomever XYZ entity in the real economy will then have an account with the Fed, just like JP Morgan or just like Janet Yellen. So if the Fed wants to give you a loan or give you a stimulus check or whatever, they can just go ahead and deposit those bank reserves into your account at the Fed, and then you can go ahead and use them in the real economy to buy a burger, a car, pay your rent, etc. And this is what Dr. Lacey Hunt refers to when he talks about the Fed turning their bank reserves into legal tender. Right. Um, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. So
1: while I have you, I'm curious, can you break down the different types of dollars that exist in the global economy, right? Like we have commercial bank dollars, and then we have euro dollars, and then we also have, I think, even like repo dollars, right? So are you able to
0: kind of decipher the difference between these more clearly? The way I think about it that I think is kind of the best where maybe the easiest is... Again, taking it back just to the dollars on whose balance sheet are we talking about? here? Because whether you're talking about repo, whether you're t- assuming that the Fed's not a counterparty, whether you're talking about repo, whether you're talking about uh, domestic banks, whether you're talking about euro dollar, we're all all of these dollars are pretty much the same, and I'd put them in the exact same bucket because they are all liabilities of a commercial bank, they're all liabilities of a commercial bank. Then the other category would be dollars that are liabilities of the federal reserve. And those are really the only two types of dollars we have in the world right now. It's just, is it a liability of the fed or is it a liability of a commercial bank?
1: Well, that that that's confusing to me because I, I thought there was a third liability which we classified as euro dollars, right? These are liabilities of of dollar denominated financial institutions but not commercial banks, right? I mean, isn't that like the whole premise of Oh no,
0: they're uh, commercial banks. Euro dollars? Oh, no, and they're commercial banks. Absolutely. Yeah, they're just banks that are outside of the 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 Fed's jurisdiction. So I don't even know if Basel 3 Basel 3 might apply to them, but I'm not quite sure. So these are those are commercial banks. They're just in the Bahamas. They're maybe in Switzerland. They're Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, the, these types of places. And they have no issue whatsoever creating dollar liabilities. So if you're a corporation XYZ, let's say in Colombia, and you want to get a dollar-denominated loan, you go to your bank in the Bahamas or whatever, uh, Bermuda or something. And you say, Hey, I need a $500 million loan. And they say, okay, cool. You got it. And then they go ahead and credit your account $500 million. And then on the asset side of their balance sheet would be that loan. And that's $500 million that didn't exist before. Now, there's no reserves. Right. There's no cash. There's no green pieces of paper. That's not settling on the Fed's balance sheet, even if they transfer that $500 to another bank, it doesn't necessarily. Even though they've got to somehow compensate for that additional liability by either decreasing the liabilities first or increasing their assets to offset that new liability, but that still doesn't have to be. That doesn't have to be settled with bank reserves on the Fed's balance sheet, that can be settled interbank with another bank in the euro dollar system or in that network that has a relationship with the Bermuda Bank. But those are still dollars that are liability on a commercial bank's balance sheet. If these banks can make these just kind of unsecured,
1: uh, you know, dollar debts, right, then then, then what purpose does uh, repo serve? Like, why would they want to go to a smart where they have to post collateral when you're saying that they can just create the liabilities um,
0: out of thin air without collateral it depends on counterparty risk like you you know maybe the the Bermuda bank doesn't have as good of a relationship with some of the other banks which would require them to have some sort of collateral so then they have to access the repo market maybe they can do that at at a cheaper rate you know, we forget that we think that repo is just a way to get cash, but, hey, you know, it could be a way to get treasuries as well for, for collateral. It just depends on you know, what side of the transaction you're on. So it, the, the, my, my point there is you can have a lot of these transactions that are completely uncollateralized, but then you could also have transactions based on the relationship between the two banks or three or four, how many are involved, where they need to post collateral. And then it might be more expensive. And you say, well, shoot, if I have to do, do that with a collateralized loan, I might as well just go into repo.
1: I see. And when a, an institution or an entity goes into repo and they say, hey, I have skin collateral, I have these bills, I want money. Where is that money coming from? Is that coming from, I don't know pension funds and money market funds or is this just yes commercial banks that are that are minting these dollars out of thin air in order to fund repo like like what's the source of
0: dollars all of the above all of the above but a lot of money market funds that's how you get a little bit of an additional interest rate you know a lot of the average joe will go into a bank and he'll look at a checking account savings account that's not very good And then they'll say, oh, well, we've got this money market fund, which is different than a money market account. But they'll say, oh, we've got this money market fund and it's paying you an extra 50 basis points. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's that's a no brainer. But what they don't realize is they're taking, they're probably taking a lot more risk uh, just to get that extra 50 basis points, especially when you consider what the repo market did in September of 2019 end the fact that we've gone from LIBOR to SOFR, which we haven't seen any big problems bubble up yet, but who knows in the future that, 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 if you understand the difference between LIBOR and SOFR, you understand how that, that could lead to some problems in the future or some additional risk for those average Joe and Janes that are just blindly depositing that money in a money market fund, not understanding that that could be going into repo where your counterparty is Deutsche Bank or HSBC (laughs) or something like that. So, yeah, it gets, it gets really crazy when you start to dive into the whole plumbing. Yeah. And so, um, and I'm just gonna keep firing up questions if that's fine. Um, yeah, I just, I want to be cognizant, David, of the other people. So, if you've done really, how do I, I've been, I was on a spaces the other day and I think people raise their hand and they interject into our dialogue or how does that work? Do you know, do I look at the requests or what do I do? Uh, there shouldn't be a notification. Uh, if are- yeah, So if you guys, so let me just, if you guys want to interject into this conversation, go ahead and raise your hand. I think that's the way you do it. And then I'll make you a speaker and then you can kind of come in and, and, and give some input. Or if you just prefer to to listen, you know, obviously that's cool too. So, uh, while we're waiting for the hands, David, why don't you go ahead and continue, please?
1: Sure. So maybe you can help, help us understand like which aspects of interest rates do, does the Fed control versus not have as much control on, right? So it's like, I think the short end, they do control, but not the long end. And then you yeah. know, lower interest rates actually indicate tightness in the market. Maybe, like, can you help us understand, like, the interest rates and then who actually
0: controls them? Sure. So the front end would definitely be the Fed. Although they don't have as much control as people think. So they definitely have control of the overnight rate through IOR. That's, we and, know that. George,
1: really, sorry. As you describe these, can you, can you, like, for the, like, layman's like like which uh products and services are impacted by what rates right like a mortgage maybe by the 10-year like i don't know our car loans just like like i i'm always confused as to what uh
0: what gets impacted by what different terms on 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 the curve you know what i mean i do and I, i'm by no means an expert there but just spitballing it here to your point the the mortgages i think would most follow the 10-year treasury and uh car loans probably that would be probably a lower maturity a credit card i think that's actually impacted by ior or fed funds and see what would another major interest rate be i think that's the majority of the consumer credit would be mortgages auto loans and credit cards So i'm not sure where auto loans would fit but i know the mortgages would fit at the long end and the credit cards would be impacted by fed funds but right now you've got a huge huge risk premium on credit cards which is why the interest rates are at an all-time high and then going back to your first your what was your first question
1: um, like, who actually controls the different durations on the interest rate curve, right? Like, like can oh, the, right, in, right. So the entire curve, or only one part of the curve, the shadow banking, all that?
0: Yeah, just really the front end. And a lot of times, if the Fed is raising at the front end, that will definitely have an impact on the long end. But it won't, but they don't totally control it. And what I was saying earlier is is even on the front end, like throughout 2022, there were many times when the one month treasury, the yield on that was like 50 basis points lower than reverse repo. So the Fed has three main rates. They've got IOR, which is basically the Fed funds, but then they've got that range, right? It was a 25 basis point range. And at the low end of that range is reverse repo. And at the high, high end is the, the discount rate. So the low end at reverse repo, that's the Fed's mechanism for controlling the floor of overnight rates. And I realize that a one-month rate, one-month treasury, isn't an overnight rate, but it's damn close. <laughs> it's, it's damn close. So I would argue if the one month treasury is 50 basis points under their floor for overnight rates, that to me is the Fed losing control of the front end of the curve. Now other people I'm sure might have a different view. So then the long end I think is much more impacted by market forces, although the front end Or the Fed's Fed fund rate is going to impact that to a certain degree as well. You know, if the Fed tomorrow took rates from 4.5% up to 10%, most likely the 10 year treasury would increase. Now, what would be interesting there is because there's such a massive inversion, because the bond market is so emphatic on a recession in 2023 or maybe the beginning of 2024 there there i think there'd be a strong argument for the 10-year treasury to spike up let's say i don't know 300 400 basis points but then to come right b- back down over the span of the next month or two because the, the the fact that the fed raised rates so aggressively would just further add to the probability the probability and the severity of the recession or depression that the bond market is already predicting. So long story short, Fed has by far the most control over the front end, and market forces by far have more control over the long end, although the Fed still has influence. Got it. So is it fair to say, you know, in your kind
1: of podcast, with Green Love, you kind of talked about this analogy of like the earth and the sun, right? And some people see the Federal Reserve as the sun and we all center around it. But I think your point you're making is, is, is that maybe it's the banking system and the market that is actually the sun and the Fed revolves around that. And it sounds like what you just described is kind of this like this battle where the Fed is kind of battling for control versus the market forces. Is that kind of like a fair assessment? It's like one's coming from the short end of the curve, uh, like the and one's kind of coming from this longer end, and the Fed control it. With perhaps uh, bank reserves um, and trying to, you know, buy and sell treasuries, and the market does it with treasuries and kind of repo and hedging and just kind
0: of like financial complexities. Is that like a, a, a decent summary? Yeah, I think you're get. I think you're getting close, David. And another example I'd encourage everyone to think through, and maybe a couple charts that you might find interesting, is look at a chart of the Fed's balance sheet when they did QE one, two, and three. And then compare that to the 10-year treasury. <laughs> and, what you'll, and common sense would lead you to believe, well, if the Fed's out there buying all of these treasuries. Okay, that's a lot more demand. Therefore, the price would most likely go up, meaning the interest rate goes down. But what you find is there's actually an inverse relationship. When the Fed was doing QE1, 2, and 3, interest rates on the 10-year went up not down so imagine how frustrating it would have been for the fed when they're trying to lower mortgage rates and every single time they do around a round of qe the 10-year treasury goes up and then right now let's let's look at what jerome powell has been doing the fed funds is at 4.5 percent but the 10-year treasury is at 3.5. And so he's sitting there. You can imagine how pissed off he is. He's like, damn it. I'm trying to bring down home prices. And every single time I raise rates at the front end, those stupid hedge funds or financial institutions or whoever is buying the long end of the curve to hedge, and it's bringing the 10 year down. And as a result, mortgage rates are actually going down, not up the opposite. (laughs) Therefore, that's putting upward pressure on home prices. So yeah, you can see with just those two examples how the the, the Fed often, especially in 2008, is at odds with the market and along into the curve. Got it. So just to recap, this will be my final question. You're essentially saying as the
1: Fed raises interest rates and they potentially perpetuate a recession, the hedge funds are wanting to hedge their risk of a impending recession by buying the 10-year, which is pushing down rates, which is then keeping the real
0: estate market alive. And so it's kind of yeah. reverse incentives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is why, well, one of the, the, the reasons why I, I use that analogy of the monetary solar system and everyone assuming the Fed is the sun, and when you actually think about it and, and understand the plumbing, you, you realize very quickly that the Fed is not the sun. The, the, the commercial banking system is, is the sun, and the Fed is just the earth that revolves around the sun, especially when you realize the amount of bank... Let's go back prior to QE, when there were only $40 billion of bank reserves in the entire system on the Fed's balance sheet. And you know, another thing that, I don't know if we mentioned this the other night, but something that I think would blow a lot of people's mind is the amount of bank reserves in 2007 total, 40 billion. And if you go back to the 1950s, the 1950s, the total bank reserves were at 20 billion. So from the 50s to 2007, we only in, we only increased the bank reserve by 20 billion. But think about what happened to M2 money supply in that time frame. So my point there is, uh, and then going back to that 2014 paper with the Bank of England and a lot of the blog posts I've read from the Federal Reserve themselves, they openly admit that prior to 2007, they, they would not create a certain amount of reserves and therefore that extends balance sheet capacity to the banks to go ahead and loan more or less. That is not the way it worked. It was actually the opposite, where the banks would come in and lend and lend, 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 whatever they thought was productive lending. They would go ahead and make that loan, and then the New York Fed or the Bank of England would say, "Oh wow, they just created an additional X Y Z amount of loans. We're going to go. We're going to have to go ahead and buy some corporate debt or or uh, not corporate debt. Excuse me." some sovereign debt, or some mortgage-backed securities to make sure that they now have enough reserves for the amount of lending that they're currently doing. So the, so most people think that they create the reserves, and then the banking system says, aha, we have this many reserves, therefore now we can create this many loans. And there's some sort of constraint. But what they don't realize is there is no constraint, even prior to two thousand uh, to QE, no constraint. On the banking system if they want to create a loan they're going to create a loan and then the fed is going to follow them just like the earth revolving around the sun and say oh how many reserves do you need okay let me go ahead and 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 create that many reserves to make sure that you can go ahead and extend loans to whomever you want as long as you think they're going to be able to pay you back and so you know this goes back to our sound money conversation david And a lot of the proponents of sound money say, well, we need this to constrain the Fed. And if we could only constrain the Fed, then this would solve all of these problems. And no, no. If you constrain the Fed, it will solve some problems. Absolutely. Like we talked about the other night with them. uh, Well, you have to eliminate the Fed, which is what I'd like to do to get a a true market interest rate in front of the curve. But it would prevent them from doing these crazy bailouts, which that moral hazard, I think that's really the big problem that we have right now. Uh, but it, it wouldn't really impact the, the monetary system um, at all other than creating that moral hazard. And so that, that's, I guess, one of the messages that we were talking about the other night, too.
1: Yeah, well, along that topic, so th- there's a couple things that, that I want to propose there, and you know, you know that I am a Bitcoiner, but I challenge the Bitcoiners constantly who think that that the a bank's ability to create fractional reserve, you know, suppresses interest rates by introducing more money supply into the system, which kind of incentivizes more credit, and all that. And all that. But I believe that that's only half the battle. And correct me if I'm wrong here, that even if the money supply is fixed, you could give the illusion. Now you have safe and free collateral via rehypothecation, which can incise more lending to happen, even if the money supply is the same. So, what I tell my Bitcoin friends all the time, and again, you know, stop me if I'm on the wrong track here. If I lend one Bitcoin to George, I mint one George IOU on my balance sheet as an asset, as a byproduct of a double entry. I can take that George IOU and borrow against it from Bank A. And then I could, in theory, rehypothecate it and borrow it from bank B and and bank C and bank D. And, and so I can give this illusion that there's many more multiples of safe Colorado than there actually does exist. And so you're still pulling more saving of a fixed money supply into the economy, which kind of perpetuates the Austrian business cycle. And so I'm curious if that resonates with you. So that's my first question. And then the second one is you mentioned this kind of, um, the, um, Yeah, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, essentially, when when there's a lender of last resort that, that 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 banks are incentivized to to keep keep lending, but I would challenge that's not even the case. Like even if we had no lender of last resort, lenders can lend as much as they want, and then they can securitize those loans, packing them up and sum off their books. barely do you hold their assets anyway. So, so I'm not sure if even we're a lender of last resort actually impacts like the toxicity of of, of credit being originated regardless because of securitization.
0: Yeah, so. Regarding your first question, my answer is I don't know. Because I I, to to fully think that through, David, I'd need to kind of take my legal pad or the whiteboard and and do the balance sheets and say, okay, this goes over here and that goes over there and that goes over there. As as far as your second question uh, regarding basically moral hazard, I think I'd have to think that through as well. But just right off the top of my head, I would say for the majority... Of the time, yes. But there are certain periods where I I think that that Fed backstop definitely impacts, even mechanically, not just psychologically, the marketplace such as, you know, COVID. And that was a great example where the Fed is sitting there buying corporate debt, you know, through special purpose vehicles and whatnot. And then the the, the GFC... um, that that's you know when they're buying mortgage backed securities off the bank's balance sheet, taking all the toxic debt or the toxic quote unquote assets, and then replacing those with bank reserves, and kind of being that lender of last resort. So again, I I don't think it's a binary type of of, of question or answer. I think it's more like it, it just depends on the circumstance. Sometimes they do, but over the long you know if you looked at the last say one hundred years, there might be five or six, maybe ten instances of them doing that, but the majority of the time they're not. But then how much of an impact that moral hazard or that you know, Fed put or that backstop plays during the times when they're not mechanically impacting markets, I, You know, that I don't know. But uh, going back to our conversation, that's, I think, the two cardinal sins as to why I would want to get rid of the Fed, uh, not so much because they impact the money supply or anything like that but because uh, they distort the price of money even if it's too low maybe it's too hot but they're still distorting it you got a central planning price of money and then the times when they mechanically do impact the market and backstop it they create moral hazard during that time and then possibly throughout other times which create even more malinvestment and more misallocation of resources. Okay. Dominic. Thanks, George. Cool. Dominic, I know you got your hand up, buddy. So I made you a speaker. Do you do you have something on that topic,
2: or did you have yeah. something regarding a different topic? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to... Can you hear me? I can. Yeah, I just I want to say I appreciate you uh, letting me speak, and, uh, you know, I'm a big fan. I, I watched a few of your whiteboard videos. Um, but I wanted to piggyback a little bit on what uh david was just speaking about sure um so i'm a i have a bachelor's degree in economics and um you know from how we were taught and how i see the federal reserve is you know the federal reserve is basically a broker dealer and they they do uh manipulate the market when it comes to um you know rates and um you know, build transfers and repos. Um, but I, as I see it, the main issue is collateralization. And, um, you know, that right now we're dealing with a lot of inflation. And the main cause of inflation is a lack of supply or, you know, an, an over. A lot of people say it's like too much money chasing too few goods. But um, it's really like a lack of collateralization that um, basically like, you know, creates a fiat rather than a store of value. And that's the same issue with Bitcoin, but. So, I don't know that, if I'm hearing
0: you correctly, that a lack of collateral impacts consumer price inflation. I'm trying to sort that one out. What I would say is, although at surface level, it does seem as though the Fed is impacting repo through you know their their repo operations or you know when they came in and and tried to bring down the repo rate when it spiked in two thousand and nineteen as an example uh, but we have to understand the banks could have done that themselves uh they it wasn't because
2: they were well, there's a... Const- Sorry, there's just a conflict of interest. If banks were to uh, validate their credit and lending, they could just, you know, inflate their lending and create assets, and that would create bubbles. Well, they can. Yeah, there's, there's
0: nothing that really constrains the banking system and the bank's balance sheets. Now, you could argue regulation, Basel three, the SLR, but... Uh, And maybe it does, but in my view, it doesn't to the extent that the regulators want because the banking system is always going to be 10 steps ahead. So if the banking system wanted to create the cash for that repo spike, they would have been able to do it if the risk reward made sense so it wasn't the fact that they're constrained on their balance sheet or there was a lack of cash or anything like that in my view because the banks can create as much cash as they want they, they don't need the the fed for that so but when the fed comes in and does these open market operations or you know tries to bail out the repo market everyone thinks that because they did that the banking system wasn't able to do that themselves, but I don't think that's true. Now, I think the banking system wasn't willing to do it for a variety of reasons, but it doesn't mean that they didn't have the balance sheet capacity. So I don't know if I'm saying something else or or that applies to what your
2: point was, your question. No, yeah. Yeah, I agree with with what you're saying, but I I think uh, the way it's set up is... uh the Federal Reserve is more of a regulator and it's a benefit to the entire system. I think banks can regulate their lending and uh, create loans and uh, manage their accounts, but I think that uh, that would just lead to more bubbles. We see that with Bitcoin and crypto, there's a lot of lending going on, but a lot of these cryptos aren't collateralized. And what I mean by collateral is, like if you're gonna go get a home loan, or uh, a real estate uh, investment property the property is the collateral for the loan in case you default so like if you get a car loan uh, the car may lose value so the collateral is kind of depreciating a lot of like consumer credit isn't really collateralized um, unless people put you know some type of property or you know their own accounts up uh, you know when it comes to collections but Like collateral is really the main issue here, Um, but yeah, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. Um, I have a question though, uh, but you can respond to uh, that.
0: Yeah, Dominic, I I think you bring up an interesting point that collateral is extremely important and I think underappreciated. But what what gets really bizarre is that the banks can create their own collateral as well. So. Yeah, you know, this is actually one kind of different view than I, that I have than my good buddy Jeff Snyder is he's always pounding the table on collateral. And I think rightfully so. But if you think about rehypothecation, you realize that, well, wait a minute here. If the primary dealers in the bank, you know, whatever you want to call them, if they're able to rehypothecate treasuries, they're, they're basically creating the collateral, or more collateral, or
2: the however much collateral they need for the system. And oh, sorry, sorry. I don't, I don't see treasuries as collateral. Okay, That's so I'm saying. I'm just talking
0: about financial transactions like repo, where the the collateral would be most likely
2: a treasury. You're talking about more so in the real economy. Yeah, I'm talking about like goods, uh, products, like what actually creates an economy. Um, I think treasuries are just, like, you know, really, the government should not issue any treasuries, but the treasury is basically, uh, like, another fiat, uh, that is, like, swapped in, um, like, money markets, but, um, you know, like, if you look at any fiat, it's basically a credit system where, um, like originally it was backed by gold gold was the collateral but nowadays it's not really backed by gold it's backed off like uh like your 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 cash flows yeah now it's really treasuries but and like bond ratings but um yeah be careful what you wish for there
0: because just assuming that we have the same system if you took out treasuries If if the government, the U.S., and as bizarre as this sounds, if you just stopped creating treasuries tomorrow and the government just, let's say, printed money in the sense that they did in 1862, where they literally printed money and they didn't even issue treasuries, and they just took all that money and paid off all their treasuries as they matured, so the amount of treasuries in the system declined rapidly. Let's say the U.S. pays off their debt over the next year. In that world, we're living in caves. Well, actually, that, we're yeah. living in caves. Uh, just that, That's a, a Mad Max type movie. Uh, that, that's how how, yeah. how much those treasuries underpin the entire global economy entire global economy i mean if you take out those treasuries the entire thing implodes and i mean that would make the gfc look like a picnic
2: yeah and um uh i agree with you but i think that uh treasuries are a way for the government to finance its spending and uh the alternative to treasuries is taxation so um yeah, I'm not saying the government shouldn't issue treasuries. The way it's set up now, they kind of have to. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of- Fortunately. Support- yeah. And it's kind of supporting the other government's lack of economic uh, foundation. Um, but, uh, I mean, if if you look at, like, the World Economic Forum, it's really just an approach issue, um, and I think Snyder's right with collateralization because- the world economic forum kind of their whole agenda is to, uh, hamper demand. Like you won't eat meat or, uh, reduce like your fossil fuel uh, consumption or, you know, you're going to live in like 200 square foot little boxes. That's really like a, a, consumption issue rather than like a production issue, which would be approached from the angle of, you know we all need to do more we all need to work harder and produce more and bring more to the market so that it's more of a competitive market and prices are more stable and they're not inflated with bubbles that need to be supported uh by like other credit uh instruments like notes from other parties that secure you know other credit it's kind of like really janky uh financial plumbing but yeah that is how i see it right now yeah i mean
0: i i think kind of what you're saying is if we could just go back to having a real economy instead of a financialized economy then we will go from living in a world of scarcity to a world back to a world of abundance because the the free market will then be a greater and greater percentage of overall economic output And that is the most efficient form of free market capitalism. That's the most efficient system that we have for creating wealth because they're just creating more and more and more goods and services at ever cheaper prices. And so, but that's, you know, you're you're talking about Malthusians. I call them the Malthusian cult. And uh, at heart, they're obviously central planners, but they also have a, a very limited scarcity type of mindset. So let me go on, yeah, and let, let's go to, I don't see anyone with their hand up, so we'll go over to Quinn. I think he's next in line here as far as uh, having a request, and let me go over there. And if you guys, uh, whoever's uh, requested, if you can kind of tailor your question around the plumbing, uh, that would be fantastic. Let me go over to Quinn. Jordan, have
1: well, wait? do you mind finishing your train of thought on your, how you, I, for from Snyder, I mean,
0: banks that play there on collateral, I, I was interested in the thread. Oh, bank, uh, the Snyder agrees and because there's basically a, you know, what's crazy is we think about fractional reserve in terms of just creating more currency units, but when you look at what the primary dealers and the banks do with rehypothecating treasuries, they're actually fractional reserving collateral (laughs) so so what the the limitation there is not collateral and that's where i i don't know i disagree with snyder but that's i I think i'd phrase it different where he says the limitation is collateral i don't know that the limitation is collateral i think it goes back to the only limitation being counterparty risk because it let's assume you've got a set amount of collateral. But uh, let's say the system needs twice as much, or there's demand in the system for twice as much collateral, right? So let's say you've got 10 units of collateral and the system demand is for 20. Well, if the uh, primary dealers of the banks or whomever can rehypothecate the, the 10 treasuries or the 10 units of collateral, if they see no risk whatsoever, they're going to go ahead and rehypothecate those units of collateral. No problem. And you need triple, you need 10 times, no problem. Who cares? There's no counterparty risk. But as that counterparty risk increases, what you notice is the collateral multiplier decreases as well. So you can have this kind of world where although you only have 10 units of collateral, and that's consistent, let's say throughout the whole entire year, you have at, at certain times when there's risk on, let's say, or there's less perceived counterparty risk, you could have a supply of 20 or 30 or 40 pieces or units of collateral. When the base layer, if you want to look at it that way, is only 10, and that at other times when the base layer is still 10, when there is increased perceived counterparty risk, the units available of collateral could go down to maybe 30, maybe down to 20. If there's enough risk, maybe they go right back down to 10, which is the original base layer. So that, that's kind of where I just phrase it a little bit different. Is I would I kind of take it to the next step and say, yes, it is true that X Y Z that we see in the marketplace can be a result of a lack of collateral. But since the system can create pretty much as much collateral as it wants, even if Janet Yellen isn't producing those, and the only limitation there is counterparty risk, then then really what caused X Y Z event isn't necessarily lack of collateral. It's just a lack of confidence that you're going to get that collateral back if you rehypothecate it. Okay, so, Quinn, did you want to chime in, buddy? Yeah. Uh, I'm always down to talk
3: about uh, QE and QT. People don't actually talk about quantitative tightening uh, enough, in my opinion, maybe because they think it's deflationary or they're worried about deflation, which, by the way, is not the boogie man that people make it out to be. But, um, yeah, like, I would love to see more serious discussion and entertainment of different monetary theories and different monetary policies than what we're on, well, certainly what we were on for like the last eight-ish years, Trump and Obama, uh, certainly, um, and to some extent what we're on now, it feels like they're a little bit more open, I say they, the current administration the current Fed seem a little bit more open to a degree of kind of taking our medicine and allowing for corrections where it felt, especially in the last four years, like they were very opposed to that. Like, no, we can't, we can't possibly have a correction because corrections like hurt people. Quote unquote. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see, I don't want to sound too, it's, it's, there's, there's, there's conflicts to this, but like, I am cautiously optimistic that as we, allow ourselves to have corrections and those corrections result in i would say greater normalization and not the end of the world that people will recognize oh maybe qe isn't actually this good like this necessary evil that we keep telling ourselves it is in the sense of it's not necessary i do think it's evil but not necessary (laughs) Mm,
0: yeah so i think it really depends on whether or not we're in an inflationary environment, first and foremost. And then I think it revolves around what type of decline in asset prices we're referring to. If we're talking about an orderly decline, where the S&P goes down by 20% over the span of six months, I totally agree. I think the the, the current you know, Jerome Powell regime, if you want to call it that, would be perfectly okay with that. No problem. That would not cause them to entertain, you know, lowering rates or doing QE or any of that stuff. But if the stock market were to go down by 20% in a week, that's a different story. So it, it's all about is it a, an orderly decline or is it a disorderly decline? And I think that impacts their decision making far more than them just seeing the light as far as how they're the qe of old and that fed put has been potentially destructive and i would say you know it doesn't really impact things from a mechanical standpoint but a psychological standpoint it it, it definitely has so i don't know if they've uh, again I, I don't know a better way to just des- describe that i don't know that they've seen the light or I don't know if they've repented their sins. (laughs) I think it's just a matter of uh, what type of decline we see. Is it orderly or disorderly? That's really their main focus, in my opinion.
3: No, that's fair. I I definitely, like I said, cautiously optimistic. I definitely don't think it's a matter of, like, suddenly, magically, they recognize that, you know, their monetary theories or policies, uh, especially, again, those of their predecessors as well as them, there's a lot of there's a lot more similarities as well. I that people don't recognize between the way that the current Fed thinks and the way the previous Fed thought, et cetera. But um that's the other thing. It's like I just wish there was more diversity of opinion. Like there were more people who like I'm a, I'm a kind of a Mises guy. There are more people who like were sympathetic to Mises who were like influencing these decisions as opposed to just like we all kind of agree. Like, I like inflation at 5%. I like inflation at 3%. I like inflation at 4%. Could we have a little bit more diversity than that? But yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, and then the question is, even if they decide on where they want inflation, what is their ability to actually achieve their objective? And I would say their, their ability is almost zero. I mean, we got to go back. And again, if you want to think that the Fed is the center of the monetary universe, then how the heck? Did we go? What was it? Ten plus years, when the Fed was trying to get in the CPI over two percent, and they couldn't do it. <laughs> like what? If you're that powerful, how can you not get inflation up over two percent? Because it that hard if you're the the monetary sun that everything revolves around. And so, well, you know, I think it's. Uh, I don't know that their ability to micromanage things as is as precise as they would want you to believe.
3: Oh, that's for sure. And the other thing is, honestly, like there's the stated rate of inflation versus the real rate of inflation. Like we're in it right now, but honestly, I don't think the real rate of inflation has, at least in my lifetime, which is you know like 30 years, has really been, for the majority, I won't say ever, but for the majority of like that 30 years, like for the last 10, certainly, and possibly the last 20, been what it is. Like what they say it is versus what it actually is. Those two numbers have almost always been different. And that's another thing that is really frustrating. It's like the stated rate of inflation is this, or the stated employment num- unemployment numbers are this, but in reality, we know they're different. So the economy isn't even being measured correctly.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, and that just, if it's not, Quinn, I mean, you could take that straight down the old rabbit hole because let's just assume for a moment that inflation, just on average, the real inflation, on average was, let's just say, 5% higher than the headline year-over-year year rate. Well, that means we've been in an economic depression since 2008, that, 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 and, and that would actually kind of make sense, an economic depression from a standpoint of negative real GDP. Because you know when you take nominal GDP, to you have to adjust it for inflation, and if you're adjusting it by a much bigger number, that if you're at three percent nominal, and you adjust it down by a two percent inflation rate, well, you're still at one, but if the real rate of inflation is five, and you start off at three, and all of a sudden you're to negative two, so that that has significant impacts, assuming that. That is true, and I would agree with you. I think that explains a lot of the economic malaise we have seen in the economy since twenty oh eight, or uh, possibly going back even further than that. No, oh, yeah, exactly. This is the 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 problem with.
3: I mean, it's it's it, it kind of ties in what I was saying about taking your medicine. It's like if you don't even want to recognize the problems as they are, to talk about the world as it exists rather than as you would like it to be, then you're not going to be able to accurately solve for or at least try to accurately address the problems because you don't see them. You see the problems as being like B minus, say, when they're actually like C minus or even D. So you're like talking, you're like strategizing past the actual issue is because you don't want to face reality to some extent.
0: Yeah, Again. And, then I, and then I'd and then i encourage you to, to ask why. So going back to our, our prior conversation, M2 money supply increased from 1990 to 2020 roughly by 400%. During that time, the stated inflation rate was around, you know, compounded, was around 120%. And with that stated inflation, real GDP was about, 90, 94% real GDP growth for that time frame from 1990, roughly, to 2020. Okay, and that's with a 400% increase in M2. So now if you go back to 1870 to 1900, you've got approximately the same increase in M2, 400%, but you have a inflation of negative 45% negative or 45% deflation which gives you a real GDP growth of 300% 300% compared to from 1990 to 2020 we have a real GDP growth of 94% right so and to your point if the headline GPI or excuse me the headline CPI was actually higher that 94% Could have been zero. Could have been zero. And if it's zero, what the hell happened? How could we have nominal GDP still increasing, but yet real GDP down at such a low rate, and we have such a dramatic increase in CPI compared to a time frame when the M2 went up at pretty much the same rate? And I think once you go down that rabbit hole, once you, you discover that there is a strong correlation between real GDP and government spending as a percentage of GDP. So if you look at a, a chart of federal, state, and local, you'll see that back during the time when we had 300% real GDP growth, and I know that's not a perfect measurement, but I think it's a, a, a pretty good rough proxy, we had government spending at you know five, six percent, something like that. So said another way, the real economy was creating or was responsible for ninety-five percent of the economic output. Isn't any surprise that we had forty-five percent deflation while M2 still increased by four hundred percent? You know, then you fast forward to today, and I think the numbers would be closer to 50% government spending. So, said another way, the real economy is only responsible today for 50%, only half of the total economic output. And if you are to assume the private sector is far more efficient than you... and and the government is far more inefficient and we're going to have much more wasted resources, misallocation of resources, malinvestment, all those things that the Austrians talk about, then it's very easy to see why we would have, or one of the big things that impacted real GDP growth going from 300% all the way down to potentially zero over a 30-year span, assuming to your earlier point that the CPI in reality since 1990, if you measured it correctly, would actually be higher.
4: Yeah,
3: no, I mean, <laughs> everything you're, you're saying matches, I think, my sort of baseline assumptions and my epistemology. And the other thing is like epistemology, you know, the, the sense, making the ability to like parse out things and, and assess reality is a key thing with all of this, because a lot of people just, they guess or they outsource their thing to other people. And you can't really get anywhere that way. You have to have systems to assess these things. And yeah, you got kind of, you can kind of trust your guts and make gut checks, but you have to check those things against other things. Whatever measurements you can make, try to use those. And one of the things I just look at in terms of observable reality is like, why is it that we had the financial crash of 2008? Why is it that it feels like, We have still had a lot of similar problems in our economy and our structure. And why is it that it seems like we're in another like really bad recessionary period right now? Maybe it's the fact that we are kind of hiding the truth from from ourselves and not being willing again to take the medicine and allow the corrections that need to happen, as well as, like you said, maybe it's the fact that we have uh, a jobs program that also doubles as a number of government, you know, jobs or government um, works, including the military, as well as, you know, the DMV and everything else. I don't know. It's, it's a complicated, multifactorial problem. Yeah,
0: I think we're also between a rock and a hard place because I, I, I agree with Snyder, and from a standpoint of... The, the big problem with the GFC is the monetary system broke, and we definitely haven't fixed it yet. Because if you think about what broke, it was the collateral side. So back then, we had, first of all, we just want to talk about a fractional reserve collateral system. Holy smokes, that was on steroids. But you had the global monetary system just going bananas, just creating whatever they wanted to. A lot of times, unsecured stuff. But even if it was secured, they're like, who cares? We're going to these mortgage-backed security things. So if you look at a pie chart of the total collateral available let's just say that it was split in half between mortgage-backed securities and treasuries and then almost overnight half that collateral was gone poof no longer useful and if you used a mortgage-backed security you'd have to pay some astronomical interest interest rate or you'd have to put up more collateral or something like that so that's really what the, the crux of the GFC. And that's why it was a financial crisis and not just an economic crisis with the housing market. So then you say, all right, George, well, how did we, how do we fix it? Why are we not in a GFC right now or GFC type of environment? And that's because what happens is the fed comes in, the government comes in with deficit spending. Now, I don't think the government's smart enough to know this is what they're doing, but they, instantly had to plug that hole with the mortgage-backed securities and the collateral with taking that off their balance sheet to replace it with bank reserves. But that didn't fix the problem. We're still got an eight-cylinder motor that's running on, let's say, four cylinders. It just didn't explode. It didn't, you know, you didn't blow up the motor. So then what happens is you get more and more government deficit spending, which if you believe that creates lower economic output, for the reasons we just stated and and from the austrian view then that's this catch 22 that i'm referring to is that in order for the global monetary system to function or get back to the point where it's at least running on six cylinders it has to fill the void that was left by mortgage backed securities with treasuries but in order to get that amount of tre- the, the amount of treasuries needed The government has to deficit spend, which negatively impacts the U.S. economy. So it's almost like you've got a Triffin's Dilemma, but instead of with dollars, you've got it with treasuries. Because with Triffin's Dilemma, the problem there was the government would have to uh, have all these deficits to get enough dollars and they would have to run these trade deficits, these huge trade deficits, to get enough dollars outside of the United States so the global economy could use those dollars. Assuming the dollar was the global reserve currency, and you know, now all of you got sixty percent of the transactions that are settled in dollars. Well, shoot, I need, you know, if you're XYZ country, you need all these dollars to do business. And if the United States isn't running a trade deficit, then you're not able to get those dollars. So it's imperative the, the U.S. runs the trade deficit, which hollows out their manufacturing base and does all of these negative things domestically. But that's the the position the United States is in. And it's just so ironic. Now they're in the exact same position, but instead of dollars, now it's it's treasuries. <laughs> that, that The global monetary system needs all these treasuries more and more and more and more to create the dollars and the euro dollar system because the counterparty risk has increased and the collateral multiplier goes down. And the more that happens, the more treasuries they need. And the more treasuries they need, the more the U.S. has to produce. The higher the deficits go, the more government spending as a percentage of GDP and the less efficient our economy becomes. So I didn't want to go off on that, that tangent, but that's one of the things that I really try to think through. To determine how do we get out of this problem, if the problem is really the global monetary system itself, and what since this Q and A is on financial plumbing and whatnot, I would really encourage everyone when they have a, a a question on how the monetary system works or you know whatever you're trying to think through, just go to a legal pad or if you've got a whiteboard that's great. And just put up the balance sheets, you know just those stupid little t things that i do on my whiteboard videos where you got assets on the left liabilities on the right and just put in the 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 counterparties involved and just do the transaction and say okay well if if this bank lends to that bank and they're not using the fed's balance sheet how does that work okay they've got they have the liability that goes from here that liability goes over there well, now all of a sudden, this bank has more liabilities, so how do they compensate for that? Okay, well, they'd have to reduce their liabilities, maybe a, a Nostro-Vostro account or a corresponding banking relationship, whatever you want to call it, or they could do it on the Fed's balance sheet, how would that happen if they don't have access to it? And you once you go down and start to just draw everything out of the board, you could visualize it. It, it makes understanding the problem and therefore being able to predict what may happen in the future and therefore making important decisions for your portfolio it makes it that much easier and i think it allows you to assess probabilities that much better which um again if you're using this from a standpoint of investment i think gives you a massive edge okay uh dominic looks like you've got it you want to make a point there
2: yeah oh go ahead yeah, I just I just want to say I agree with uh your last statement. Um, but I also want to say that I think there's a huge issue because there's not a uh universal ledger. Um, you know, there's a lot of market manipulation taking place. There's a lot of stuff that uh isn't being tracked and accounted for, and yeah. that's to that's to keep things going the way that they want them to go. Um, but uh you know, when when you were talking about uh CPI and um how that's recorded um you know i I hear a lot of people you know speak about how the real cpi is higher or you know there's like a lot of distrust with the government and um you know like central planners and i i i question whether you know obviously there's issues but is it because of um ignorance or is it because of like uh malice yeah like malice or moral (laughs) yeah moral hazard and you know it's really hard to filter that out but i think that it's more ignorance and i think that a lot of central planners aren't really educated to the ability that they're required to you know fulfill their their positional obligations but um you know if you look at uh why the cpi rose so much following 2020 well Um, you know, there wasn't a lack of collateral with treasuries. Um, there was still a stable, uh, demand for goods and services. And people weren't able to, I mean, some people were able to work from home, but not a lot of people. And there's still a demand. There's still money being spent. There's stimulus being created, but the production was lower. And that's why there is such high CPI that we're dealing with now. But, um, to segue into what you just said uh to solve all these problems is like so complex but essentially uh i think i mean i could be wrong but i think we need a new value system because you know if you look at how human beings have uh you know like created societies together it's based off like trade uh that's why free trade is so important but um you know just creating credit systems and like fractional reserve and um you know allowing for market manipulation it's not really a good value system in the long run and you know i just think that you know bitcoin was such a good idea but uh without collateral or like practical application it's really it's just going to be used to take us further into the digital world um and that's, I you know that's really where we're at now is, you know people have great ideas but, um, you know the the way things are is really, uh they they're not intended to you know be optimized. Yeah, we've been using a similar
0: bank ledger money, if you want to call it that, credit system for quite literally thousands of years, and. Unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, you know, that was created based on our hardwiring as human beings. And I don't know how money fixes humans. It might create different incentives. I get that. But I don't know how it fixes humans. And this is a conversation that I'm looking forward to having with my good friend Robert Breedlove. I'm going to be speaking to him again. We're going to, we did part one, but we're going to do a part two. I think I talked to him on the 12th or something like that. But the whole premise of the last conversation was kind of trying to think through history and, you know, sound money. But the next part of the conversation is going to be more focusing on Bitcoin and the future and say, okay, we realize we've got these problems, you know, government spending, we've got taxation at 18%. So, even if you had no deficit spending, government spending would still be pretty darn high if people were voting for it. So h- how, how can we take Bitcoin and potentially not, not be able to solve the problems? I hate to use the word solve because there are no solutions. There's only trade-offs. But it, at least make the system better. I don't know that we can. I, I don't know that Bitcoin fixes humans. I don't know that it even makes them better or the system better. But it's an idea that I definitely want to explore and I'm looking forward to exploring with Robert on the the 12th or whenever we we talk next. So, I mean, I would say there's always
3: going to be money. There's always going to be stores of value. You can't really get away from that. Uh,
0: We had golds. We had... There's uh, always going to be credit too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Credit and debt. There's always going to be ledger credit where you're not even, you know, because just two parties interacting between one one another and you need uh, goods, you don't have the money, so I just extend credit to you and there's no monetary transaction whatsoever. That goes back thousands of years and I think it'll proceed thousands of years into the future.
3: Oh, for sure. And to some extent, like, that's what you describe is a process that isn't necessarily even... It is isn't necessarily even as I want to say you're not, you're not saying it's business per se, but you're saying it's it's kind of like. Or in say you're saying it's kind of like this this nebulous thing. Honestly, that's just like a system of bartering. It's all it's all based off of bartering. the The issue is like we went from direct bartering, like I give you this um, food, and you give me this animal, or I do this work for you, and you give me this. Food or this animal or whatever, this plot of land. And we, you know, put a, a sort of intermediary step with money, with gold, with whatever. I think there's always going to be that. The question really is how do we make it so that the markets where we exchange all these things, where we do this complicated bartering and credits and swapping or whatever, is more logical, for lack of a better way of putting it. I think that's actually actually a pretty good way of putting it because the fundamental problem, I think, with all this stuff, with QE, with QT, with the problems that we see or we intuit uh, in the market is that there's a lack of logic, not just in the sense of things not being clear to the average layman because there's always going to be complexity. There's always going to be systems that are more complex than we would necessarily love them to be and that we have to, these things have to be explained by experts, fine. It's that... The systems and the markets don't actually make sense because there's a kind of deliberate obfuscation of reality and again an, an impulse i think to avoid seeing things what they are and at times taking the medicine or the hard corrections reactions um uh pushes and pulls that are going to result from seeing things as they are. Sometimes people are going to take out loans that they can't repay. Sometimes people are going to make bad bets in terms of like the way that we have betting and gambling in the market and they're going to lose. And we can't always have the mindset of, we have to make sure that certain people don't lose. I think we sometimes have to let people lose. At the and
0: high levels and the low levels. You always have to. I think you always do. I and mean, you're just talking about free market capitalism. and I am. We're, the, you know, the, like, the, like like, like yeah. Dan Friedman says, the loss is just as important as the profit. <laughs> and what no. we've done is we've tried to eliminate the loss. We've tried to socialize the losses. And we've tried to privatize the, the profits. And that's that's going to lead to just more and more inefficiencies. But I think, you know, at the the core of your, your comment, Quinn, we, we've got to remember that at the end of the day, forget the money. All, all we're really doing is just trading excess productivity. And And the true wealth in society is not money. It's not gold, not Bitcoin, not dollars, not any of that stuff. The true wealth in society are goods and services. That's wealth. And I always use the example of a desert island. And you, okay, so you've got 100 million Bitcoin. You've got 800 tons of gold or whatever. Are you rich or are you poor? <laughs> You're dirt poor because all you got is some salt water, some sand, and a coconut. You're, what's your standard of living? So just in that simple example, you realize that, whoa, the, what's really important is the creation of goods and services. That is wealth. So what type of system can we set up that maximizes our ability as human beings and as a society to be as productive as we possibly can? And then what system can we use that most efficiently allows us to trade our excess productivity? The value in any given economy, I think
3: this was... Uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, he's actually kind of a uh, economist slash um, energy uh, educator, scientist, I'll have to find his name, but the, the, basic, the basic idea he had was the actual value in a given economy or a given system is the excess energy that exists in that system. Human productivity... Was that, that on Berman? Uh, no, um, I'll, I'll find it, I'll find it, but like uh, human productivity actual energy like electricity fuel this and that the amount of that that a person or an entity can acquire right how many people you can hire or pay for their labor this and that versus what you cannot that is the true measure of wealth like you said like if you have a bunch of gold on a desert island it's not really worth anything whereas if you live in any society where you could employ people to work for you and pay them for their time and a lot of them. That is the measure of how wealthy you
0: are. Yeah, I, I, I see where you're going with that. I for for me, just to keep it super simple, I I look at it just from a standpoint of goods and services. But I, I definitely understand the impact of excess energy for sure. Let me go ahead and take one more uh, requested individual because it's seven fifteen my time. I need to, I need to shower really quick. I need to make tonight's whiteboard video live. And then I gotta get up to dinner where I'm gonna enjoy some some Don Julio. Don Julio seventy. I don't know why I've, I've been on this tequila kick lately, the last three or four months. Hey yo Jordan. I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. If you guys like tequila, try Don Julio, but not just Don Julio. Try the seventy. Uh I don't know if that's an anniversary version. It is the smoothest tequila you will ever encountered it's awesome <laughs> all right let's go over to mr. crypto he's next in line crypto crazy okay crypto crazy or this is connecting oh no and you know, he just disappeared okay well let's go to the next person is yours truly I had his speaker there we go all right yours truly you you're up yeah thanks again george i appreciate it uh fan of the show
4: Uh, i watch your show i wouldn't say religiously but very often um you make a lot of great insightful points you know regarding um what's been happening uh since 2008 since the great financial crisis um again leading always leading up to this there's just been crisis after crisis right um yeah in addition to that again with uh, the governments using quantitative easing or monetary policy to get things stimulated back into the economy, right? But at the same time, you also have fiscal policy, right, where um, if if the, the central banks can't spend or meet their objectives, it's usually the, the federal governments that come in and they enact their fiscal policy. But usually there's a time lag, right? Time lag is that, if monetary policy doesn't work, then boom, we have fiscal policy, right? But at the same time, you get geopolitical risk, right? Which is in the current situation that we're in right now, with geopolitically. Um, but at the same time, yeah, there is a problem with the capitalistic financial uh, system because it is it is a capitalism that we're under, right? But we're at the late stage of cap- capitalism. Um,
0: yeah, I don't know if I I'd, I'd go that far. I do agree that there's problems with capitalism, and, and let's be very specific with our phrasing right it's not just capitalism that's important because it's free market capitalism right right and although we may have capitalism right now we have nothing even remotely resembling free market capitalism so that's why whenever i do my live streams i always conclude not by saying freedom liberty and capitalism but i always make sure that i say free market capitalism because the capitalism that we see right now is not free market capitalism. I would classify it as kind of corporatism <laughs> or like some sort of weird like corporate welfare type of capitalism.
4: Right, right, right. And I don't want to get get into like polit- political theory, but like, yes, it is a it is a, a neo- monopolies and the, the, the
0: major, major cor-
4: corporations that are running things. But at the end of the day, it does come back to like, yes, goods and services, but at the same time, labor, right? Like you need energy to do anything, right, and that gets absorbed and converted into the goods and services uh, that we use. You get rid of labor, you get you get rid of the entire system. So without labor, you can't get things up. But then at, at the same time, like the capital
0: without any of it, you know, w- w- without the 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 intellect, without the experience, without the wisdom, without the capital, uh, without the leadership. You're not going to have anything. You know, the example that I always use there is my YouTube channel. And it's not that I'm any genius or something like that. And I give most of the credit for the success of the YouTube channel, to your point, to my employees. But I was the one that came in with the capital to start the YouTube channel in the first place. Without that capital, it never would have happened. And I was also the one that came in with the expertise And not only the expertise in creating videos, because prior to this I did a TV show, but also the expertise in managing people. Because if this was just the employees, where would the YouTube channel be? Even if they were to find some like spokesperson that could come up and stand in front of the whiteboard and do these things, the YouTube channel would not have been nearly as successful, even if that presenter was just as good as I am at presenting. Because of what I brought to the table with my business acumen from all of my experience, the capital, and most importantly, my ability to manage people. Because if you're a business owner and if you've had, you know, if you've grown a business from ten employees to fifty employees to a hundred employees, you understand that the majority of your time is—I don't want to call it babysitting—but it's it's managing people and uh, through systems and whatnot. And that is is the key component. The the employees, although they are important, I would argue they aren't as important as the the, the person that brings in the capital or the expertise. Yeah, capital is the entrepreneur, if you will.
4: Yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship, right? Yep. Um, yep. But uh, at, at the same time, when we talk about like the like this current situation about financial plumbing, like yeah, like, it's great to have a ledger system, but, like, you know, you can look at the balance sheet, et cetera, right? But some things can be kept off the books. Like, not everything gets, quote-unquote, reported. There's some things that don't get reported, right? We also have, like, you have black markets and and whatnot. So, when we look at the grand scheme of things of the economy, like, yeah, like, you have, like, the quantitative easing, like, the the fiscal stimulus, et cetera, et cetera. But also, you have, like, you have, uh, like black markets where there's a whole other economy of things that people don't even see. That's not shown. That doesn't get the time or the light. The time or light of day. Um, so uh, again, like when I look at things, especially from, from in the U.S., um, mm-hmm. like there's things structurally wrong, and I mean like like the real economy, like infrastructure, like how like infrastructure is crumbling. There hasn't been money spent on that to repair, replace, maintain, and fix things, right? Um, we haven't even modernized a lot of the stuff over here, like high-speed trains, like to get people moving again, right, from point A to point B. Uh, re- consistent, reliable transportation that runs twenty-four-seven to have things accessible, because transportation is one of the greatest determinants of uh, of uh, of of wealth for people. Right, Mm -hmm. so when I look at things that are like people oriented, those things have not been done. If anything, they've been gutted, right? And then also you look at corporations as well. They're investing more and more into automation, as you've seen with Microsoft, uh, with the recent layoffs, etc. So that's just one example. But again, this all goes back to people. People are the heart of everything. It's what drives. It's what drives the world. Is it's what drives businesses. You have needs. You're trying to meet your needs or wants. Right, you need goods and services. You also need to con- You also need labor to meet to get to meet to get those needs. So, I look at things a grand scheme in the grand scheme of things, and uh, capitalism. The way I see it is like it's in its late phases, late stages, um, and there's definitely a problem that has to get addressed in, in terms of the real economy. Yes, we are moving into a a, dig- a digital co- uh, economy. I understand that where federal government they can you know create these cvdc's put it in a package right put it online um and then get dispersed through your phone right to monitor and track everything but at the end of the day it's all about people so i just wanted to share that with you but uh, thanks again for having me on as a speaker
0: yeah i completely agree and it is absolutely true that even free market capitalism is extremely flawed but we have to remember that we are imperfect creatures living in an imperfect world. So it's not about finding a perfect system. That is not possible, that that's for the next life. What we have to do is just figure out what the least bad system is and then be okay with that and say, this is the best we can do. And I think that free market capitalism would be the least bad system us imperfect human beings can create. And in that type of system, although it's far, far, far from perfect and it creates wealth gaps and everything else, it's going to give the most amount of people the best chance at having the highest standard of living. And you're using the term late-stage capitalism, which is from from Marx, and Marxism, as I'm sure you know, and so I don't think the solution is that we're at late-stage capitalism. This thing's whole thing is going to crumble, and therefore the government needs, and the state needs to come in and take control over the means of production. Because if they don't, then the capitalists are just going to eat each other, and they're going to continue to lower wages in an effort to increase profits, which is going to decrease aggregate demand, because that means less money in the in the back pocket of their employees, and you just have this vicious downward spiral. Uh, and therefore, the only solution is for the state to take over the means of production from the capitalism. I don't see that as a, a a viable or a better option than reducing the size of the state, reducing the size of government, and trying to get back to as close to a free market capitalist system as we can, understanding that that's still going to lead to inequality and it's still going to lead to a lot of very, very significant problems, but that's just the best we can do as people. And I think it goes back to Thomas Sowell and when he talks about the vision or the different types of visions that you have and you either have a constrained view of the world or you have an unconstrained view and if you've read that book you know exactly what i'm talking to i can't recall the the title of the book but i would look at the world from a very constrained view and say that that we can't we will never achieve perfection there is no nirvana here on earth so we just have to say you know what what's the least bad system and kind of go that direction and i think if we had the state take over The means of production from the capitalists. Although we don't have capitalism right now, we're late stage capitalism. That is a far less desirable outcome, or that would lead to far uh, less, uh, a far lower standard of living for society at large than trying to get back to that system where we still have inequality through free market capitalism. I think that's kind of the 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 best way I can tackle that. And I don't. Yeah, I I, all I'm thinking. Into your question, a little bit too much.
4: No, all I'm saying is, like, you can have mark, like, you can still have markets, right? Like, no, I'm not saying eliminate markets. No, you can still have markets, but you can't have, you can't have it where it's
0: like monopolies Yeah, but but how do you get a monopoly? In my worldview or the research that I've done, a monopoly would be very, very difficult without the state. Now, you can point to specific. Uh, monopolies and say well there you go george right but for short periods i completely agree that monopolies are are definitely uh could pop up in a free market capitalist society but if you look at you know five years ten years it's very very difficult and the, the the view there is that well once a business gets so big they'll just buy up all their competitors and then they can just jack up the prices and the consumer only has one option therefore we need the government to come in and step in but I think that's a very limited, kind of almost elementary view. And when you go back to, let's say, the 1970s, I would strongly suggest watching Phil Donahue and some of his interactions with Milton Friedman uh, They're on YouTube. And at the time, Milton, or excuse me, Phil Donahue, they were having this discussion, and he was talking about all the airlines that we, we have to have the government come in and break up these monopolies. We cannot have a free market system because then I think the big airline at the time was like TWA. TWA is going to buy up all the other airlines, and they're gonna jack up the prices, and no one's going to be able to afford to fly and blah, blah, blah. And what we saw is when we had a deregulation of the airline, the complete opposite happened. You have more competition and you know TWA doesn't even really exist in its prior form anymore and uh you know go back to the what was it the the nifty Fifty? No, it wasn't the nifty fifties it was the what was that all it was like the Fang stocks of the late 1960s and these were the stocks and these were the almost monopolies that you could invest in and know that your investment was going to be safe because they had such an incredible moat around their business and today you know, ninety percent of those businesses are what they don't even exist. So I, I do agree that monopoly is a problem, but I don't think the solution is the state. I think the solution is is a free market capitalist system. I mean, you, you got it. What what is that saying? Most of you guys probably know, and I'm going to butcher it. But whenever you're trying to catch a thief, the best way to do it is to send another thief after them. Or the only way that you can catch a thief is with another thief. And I think the only way... You got to think uh, like a criminal to uh, catch a criminal? Yeah. And I think it's the same way with a monopolist. The only way that you can take down an entrepreneur or a capitalist is not with a bureaucrat, but it's with another capitalist. I think that's the most efficient uh, way to approach that problem of monopoly. All right, Dominic, do you want to chime in, buddy? And I'll give you the last word, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna
2: shut her down after
0: that. You want to?
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. I just want to clarify that uh, the difference between um, capitalism and communism, or capitalism and socialism, is government control. To what extent the government controls the goods and services in the market? Okay. Um, and, but uh, I agree with what you're saying. I just think that, um. um you know a, a monopolistic competitive market is not a bad thing it's it's actually better than a non competitive market um and to beat a monopoly, you just um you have more competitive pricing and you have you know more efficient business but to uh to finish off this and I uh, appreciate you having me on and you know holding this space but uh you know to solve a lot of these problems, which I know you said that you don't think that they can be solved. I think that they can be solved. I just think that businesses need to be created that, uh, you know, provide solutions to, uh, financial discrepancies, uh, you know, like infrastructure that are vertically and horizontal horizontally integrated and, you know, they private businesses and, you know, actual capitalism will solve this problem of, you know, we're basically in a socialistic world. Um, and, you know, there's really no need for governments other than, uh, you know, like, defense. But that's pretty much it. Uh, I appreciate Yeah, it. yeah. So, guys and gals, really appreciate the time.
0: And if you like these types of interactions or spaces, just go ahead and maybe let me know on the, the tweet. I think you can kind of reply to that. And when I get some time, I'll check it out. Other than that, enjoy your weekend, guys. And uh, I look forward to speaking to each of you on another one of these conversations in the future.